Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Jesus had a habit of speaking to people about the kingdom. It was almost like it was his most consistent theme. He was always talking about the kingdom. And one day, he uh, was traveling near the Sea of Galilee, and so he goes out, and he, maybe he was talking with a group of people, and then he was talking with his, his close followers, but then all of a sudden, this massive crowd starts forming around by the sea, and Jesus knows that the crowd is getting so large that he's going to have a hard time communicating to all of them. One of the times he just like got on top of like the hill and then sort of spoke down towards everyone. But this time he had the brilliant idea, maybe it wasn't his, maybe it was a fisherman with him, to get in a boat and then push out away from the shore and teach the crowds as his voice would reflect and reverberate across the water and be able to be heard for, by thousands of people. He didn't have like this sort of thing and speakers and stuff like that, nothing like that. And he spoke to them about the kingdom. He said, what do you make of this? The kingdom of God is sort of like a farmer, like someone who goes about and scatters seed to grow something. And some of the seed he scatters and it falls upon the road. And the birds eat it. Other seed he scatters on gravel, maybe the side of the road, and, and it springs up quickly and grows, but then, because it is on gravel, it doesn't take root and it dies just as quickly. And other seed he scatters among weeds, and as the seeds grow up, the weeds choke out the seeds and they wither and die. And yet, then there is some seed that scatters upon good soil, and it takes root, and it grows and produces a harvest beyond his wildest imagination, 30, 60, 100-fold. Are you listening? Jesus would say, are you listening? The kingdom of God is like seed that multiplies when it finds good soil beyond, its, beyond the farmer's wildest dreams. And Jesus said 2,000 years ago and contended something that I'm going to try and convince you of this morning. He contended that the kingdom, if I can find my next page, the kingdom was the defining reality of our existence. He said the kingdom is actually something that you all want. You all desire. We walk around with some vision of what we would like life to be, some hope, some dream, some desire of the good life. Listen to what James K. Smith says. He says, to be human is to desire the kingdom. Some version of the kingdom, which is, our aim, which is the aim of our quest, Every one of us is on a kind of Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, that hoped for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life, the realm of human flourishing that we pursue without ceasing. Implicitly and tacitly, it is such visions of the kingdom that pull us 
to get up in the morning and suit up for the quest. Why study the kingdom of God? We're starting a series this morning called Kingdom Come. And we're going to think all a month, this month of June, about the kingdom of God. And there are a couple of reasons that I'd like to speak with you about this morning. I'd like to even convince you of why we should study this, okay? The, the first is that the kingdom is just plain confusing. Like, it's just, like, you read through the Bible, you're like, what is the kingdom? Like, Jesus is talking about some farming thing again? Like, I don't get this. This is confusing, right? I, if you read the over 150 references to the kingdom in the New Testament alone, which I've done over the last couple weeks, and then try and synthesize them, like, you just go nuts. Like, what is this? It's confusing. But not only is it confusing, it's actually the most central theme of the entirety of this book. So it's important for us to begin to understand and make plain. So it's confusing, it's central, and I would say for us as a church and as a church plant, it's absolutely critical. I mean, the very mission that God called us to was to awaken people to the presence and power of King Jesus. And if we are to understand what it means to follow King Jesus, we have to understand what his kingdom is and how it works. And so we're going to think about the kingdom this month. We're going to think about the kingdom this month. And I want to convince you why we should study this and also help you understand a little bit of a definition of the kingdom and how we all desire the kingdom. Okay, ready? Point number one, the kingdom of God is confusing it is one of the most confusing teachings of Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus said what? Jesus said what? It's confusing, right? We just read the verse that where Jesus said, he walked around going, the gospel of the kingdom is here, right? He, Jesus walked around saying, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But then he, he told all of the, these other goofy stories about like farmers and told stories about pearls and he told stories about sheep and goats. And like he was telling all these like word pictures and metaphors about what the kingdom is. And then he taught his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Right? He, um, he even said the night before he died, I will come again and we will hang. We will kick it together again in the kingdom, eating good food and drink. So before he left, he told his, his closest friends the kingdom was coming and they would enjoy it together. When you read what the New Testament says about the kingdom, it is hard to pin down. Right? Like, there's some verses like Romans 14 that make it seem like the kingdom is this spiritual reality. Romans 14 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but Jesus said he was going to eat and drink in the kingdom with his disciples. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's other passages that speak of the kingdom like it's a future thing. 
Like, we do not have the kingdom here and now. The kingdom of God is a future reality, a coming political realm in which all of the nations and states and peoples of the earth will be subject to Jesus, who is the ruler and king. This is what Matthew 25 is getting at, right? It says, Jesus is saying this, when the Son of Man, that's his name for himself, comes in glory meaning the Son of Man's not in glory right now. He's about to go suffer and die. This is the end of his life. He's saying this. When the Son of Man comes in glory, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inheritance. Future. The kingdom's not here yet. But then there's other passages like the one that we all read aloud this morning that say the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Another one is Colossians chapter 1 where the apostle Paul says he, that's Jesus, has delivered us from the, or that's the father. He, the father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Delivered is past tense. So Paul is saying, if you believe in Jesus, you have been delivered, you've been moved from a domain of darkness and put into a kingdom that belongs to the beloved son of God. Past tense, you're in the kingdom. What do we make of all this? It's confusing. Part of what makes the kingdom confusing is the English language. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. Like The way that we think about kingdoms affects the way that we read kingdom in the Bible. So when you think about a kingdom and when I think about a kingdom, I I just sort of naturally think of a place, right? This realm or area where a kingdom, where a people live or a king exists and sort of is in charge, right? I think of a realm, Or I think of the people itself that are part of the kingdom. Maybe you think of like the place of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Maybe you think of the United Kingdom. And for you that means like, well, all the Brits, all those people, right? We think of place or we think of people which are not completely unrelated to what the Bible says about kingdom, but not at all right on the money. What the Bible says about kingdom What a kingdom is, in both the Old Testament, which its primary language is Hebrew, and in the New Testament, which primary language that it was written originally in is Greek, it describes the kingdom as rule and authority. Not a place, not a people. The kingdom is a rule, an authority. Jesus tells this story once um, to a group of people of a a nobleman who um, has apparently some charge over a certain amount of people and money. And so he, this nobleman leaves the country he lives to go and receive a kingdom. That's weird, right? He goes to receive a kingdom, which 
in their day would have been maybe he went to Rome or something like that or went off to some other place and he went to receive a kingdom and before he left, he set some of the people that he left behind in charge of things, right? You may be familiar with this story as the parable of the talents or, of, um, or, or about stewardship where, G, where the, the, the nobleman gives a certain amount of money and says, hey, steward this while I'm gone and the ones who invest it well and they get return on it, he comes back and he gives them more. And the ones who don't invest it well, he takes it away from them. But it's interesting. The nobleman goes to get a kingdom. What does he get? Does he get a place? Does he get people? No. He goes and he gets the right to rule. The right to be in authority from a higher authority. The kingdom of God is primarily about rule. And so when we pray or we think about what it means to seek first the kingdom of God, what we are saying is we want to seek first the sway, the rule, the authority, the reign of Jesus in our lives more so. One of the best metaphors for understanding the kingdom of God and sorting through all of the New Testament passages about what it could be in the, in the future and is it already here and is it a spiritual reality is actually what was commemorated this week. June 6th, 1944 was D-Day. It was the point in the, in, at the end of World War II where all of the Allied forces banded together and stormed the banks of Normandy, taking ground and setting foot back on, Euro, on Europe's soil. It was, as you can see here, an incredibly bloody affair. There's a few other, look at, look at the, the organization and even the paratroops coming down and flying in, I think, it was a massive invasion. And when, when historians look back on World War II, they call this moment of the invasion at Normandy D-Day because it was the decisive moment in the war when victory for the Allied forces was inevitable. It signaled the fact that Germany and the Nazi regime was going to lose. But it wasn't V-Day. It wasn't Victory Day. That actually came almost over a year later. So as after D-Day, the decisive moment when the war was literally won battle-wise, the final surrender of V-Day was still yet coming. And, and many theologians have said this is the best way to make sense of what the New Testament talks about in terms of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came and walked this earth in a, with a perfect life and died a sacrificial death, D-Day happened on the cross. D-Day happened such that the decisive blow to the enemy of darkness, to sin in our world was dealt, and victory is imminent. But we stand in the gap still between D-Day and V-Day when the war is completely done. The kingdom, the rule of Jesus, is sure, and it is present, but it is not full. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet in full. It's the best way to make sense of this confusing piece of Scripture. 
So the kingdom of God is plain confusing. But not only is it confusing, it is central, okay? Um, we got to go to school. You guys ready to go to school? We're going to Bible school for a minute, okay? I promise it won't be long, and then we'll get back to, to teaching and stuff like that. But I guess you go to school to teach. But why is the kingdom important for us to understand? It's important because it is central. It is literally the backbone of the Bible. If you, if you reflect on the, the opening pages of, the, of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, God makes man and woman, and he says that he makes mankind in his image and likeness, which is a linguistic tie to what kings back in that day would do as they expanded their territory. What they would do is they would set up statues of themselves at the outskirts of their territory as representatives, as markers of their reign and their rule, as an indicator that there is one with an authority. And so when God says, I'm going to make men and women as my image bearers, as, as reflectors or statues, representatives to who I am as king, our very nature then is to walk around and point and, 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 and indicate towards that there is a king. That was the original design in Genesis. But if you roll forward just a few chapters, the first move that Adam and Eve make is to reject God as king and to institute themselves as their own authority. And the story plays out over and over throughout the Old Testament where it's seemingly that God's kingdom will start to be established again and again. But as hard as God's people try and as best as their efforts are, they, they come up short constantly. Any earthly king that they put forward fails miserably, usually morally, but sometimes spiritually. And, and, and they're left sort of back at square one with rebellion as the norm. Time and time again, the stage is, is set and foreshadows are laid for a coming king. And that's exactly what we have in the story of Jesus. One who claims to be the coming king. Who claims to be the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament talked about and the one to bring the kingdom of God. If, if man by the, mankind by our best efforts cannot create this kingdom that is perfect and where everyone flourishes, then God says, if you cannot create heaven here on earth, I will bring heaven to you by myself. The kingdom of God will come among you because the king will come among you. And the conclusion of the whole storyline is, of course, when the king returns and he has his robe dipped in blood because of the victory battle won and he has on his thigh a tattoo that says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he comes to rule. The story of the Bible is a story of kingdom. But the unfortunate thing for much of the American church over the last century is that there has been this separation between cross and kingdom. And there have been many who have been proponents of the kingdom and of seeking equity among all, of serving the common good, of ministering to the needs within society, of fighting and combating injustice, but at the same time have lost their focus of the cross. 
And there have been all sorts of other streams and churches who have majored on the cross, saying Jesus died for sin and he offers salvation for your forgiveness, but with little thought to the kingdom that is already and not yet. But how is it that Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom and we have gone and separated the very events of his life, death, and resurrection and the kingdom that he promised to come and bring? When we tell people that the gospel is just a fair and flourishing society, we miss the biblical picture of the kingdom. And even when we tell people that the gospel is just salvation and spiritual escape to the heavenlies, we miss Jesus' teaching on the gospel of the kingdom. We have bartered the good news of the scriptures for a substitute. We have this bootleg version of what the gospel is that we've picked up along the way, either at some store or at the corner mart, and when we get it, it works fine, and then a week later or two weeks later, you go, oh, that's the reason it was so cheap. We need a return to the full gospel of the kingdom. We need a return to what J.I. Packer, this wonderful good-hearted pastor in his 90s, calls the old gospel. This is a long quote, but a good one. Let me read it. He says, The new gospel conspicuously fails to produce deep reverence, deep repentance, deep humility, a spirit of worship, and a concern for the church. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man, to bring peace and comfort and happiness and satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel is helpful too, more so indeed than the new, but so to speak incidentally. For its first concern was always to give glory to God. It was always an essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty, of rule, of authority in mercy and judgment. A summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. Whereas the chief aim of the old was to teach men to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. The subject of the old was God and his ways with men, and the subject of the new is, the, is, is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. The perspective, the whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed from the old gospel to the new gospel. Friends, this is why I felt called to plant this church. I am convinced of the old gospel. 
I am convinced of the rightful rule and authority of Jesus. And I've woven into our even purpose and mission as a church for us to live in light of King Jesus. Not the Jesus who just makes me feel good to my, my favorite worship song, but the Jesus who is the Lord over everything, the one to whom my knees must bow, my life must conform, and my purpose must align. Jesus is the rightful king in mercy and in judgment, and his gospel is good news. We must understand the kingdom as central to the Bible and critical to our mission as a church. The kingdom is critical for us, right? We're studying the kingdom because I want us to live more faithfully for King Jesus, I want us to even be awakened more fully to the reality of the presence and power of King Jesus. And I want us to make disciples that make disciples that spread the news of the goodness of his kingdom to all. That's what I long for. Listen, we live in an age full of passion. We live full of passion, right? Everything from your favorite coffee shop to the grocery store to your nonprofit to the podcast you listen to has a cause to change the world. But we live full of passion yet searching for purpose. Will it do for us to sort of just look to the ancestors or to whatever organization in the community seems like it's got good PR? Will it do for us to just listen to YouTube and, and respond to whatever the almighty algorithm suggests for us to watch next? Will those do? No. No, no, no. We, we return to the very source of truth that has given men and women purpose beyond themselves and captivated their passion for generation after generation after generation. When Jesus came and walked this earth and he, and he went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he announced an invitation into the greatest cause of all time, the cause of the kingdom. And he said, turn. Turn away from those other kingdoms, those other visions of the good life, those other hoped for, longed for dreams, and orient yourself towards me and my kingdom, and you will have all that you need. What's his promise? The kingdom of God is here. And it's an invitation into a cause unlike any other that will captivate our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our wills, all of us. This is why understanding what it means to live in the kingdom is so crucial. Because life in the kingdom of God both fuels spiritual depth and growth, but also numerical growth. Remember the parable, the seed Right? The sower, the farmer, seed lands on good soil and then all of a sudden starts to multiply and spread. If you really do live out of who you are, 
That's part of what orients your life. And then you begin to think of yourself as a citizen in the kingdom, as, as one who has allegiance to King Jesus. Then what will happen is all of your life will become the classroom for him to teach you the ways of the kingdom. All of your life will become opportunity for kingdom growth and advancements. There will not be any circumstance, whether work or home or play or school, whatever. Jesus will be at work there moving forward his kingdom purposes. Life will come alive with meaning and purpose. Even in the mundane, Jesus is there moving forward his kingdom. I think it's helpful for us to remember that the kingdom is not primarily about our religious spiritual activities. Not that those don't have their place. Spiritual habits and practices are important, but the kingdom is primarily about orienting your entirety of your life around Jesus seeing yourself within the kingdom always. Listen to what Dallas Willard says life in the kingdom is like. I, can't, I have not found a better description of the Christian life lately. So simple. He says three things. First, I am learning to do all, all the things with Jesus, which Jesus said explicitly to do. I'm learning to do what Jesus said to do. Like, it's quite literally nonsense preposterous to say that I love and I believe in King Jesus if I don't want to do what he said to do. Number two, he says, I am learning to conduct the usual activities of my life in home, school, community, business, and in government, in the character and in the power of Jesus. Number three, he says, I am learning to exercise the power of the kingdom of Christ and his word and his spirit to minister good to others and to defeat evil in whatever form I encounter it in the world. That sounds like a great life to me. That sounds like a cause worth living for, a reality worth living into. Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We all live for some kingdom, but our hearts ache for God's kingdom. But here's the deal. None of us is fit for the kingdom. When I look at my life, when I look at many of your lives that I know well enough, I'm like, man, we don't deserve to be in that place, the place of flourishing, the place that's fair, the place where all peace and goodness dwells. That's not what my heart exhibits all the time. Is it what yours? I am not fit for the kingdom. And so whenever we encounter Jesus, my friend Hunter Beaumont says that the rightful experience is both this attraction as the kingdom is compelling, and we, we desire it, we want it, but it's also convicting because we're not quite fit for it. We must enter by grace. The invitation is to all, and the entrance is through the cross. The kingdom and the cross have to be linked together. But listen, this is why I think Jesus says, repent. He says, repent and believe in the gospel because he knows there are other versions of the kingdom that we have long chased after that we must leave behind. So what do you need to turn from? What do you need to leave behind? What do you need to let go in order to seek first the kingdom of God?
when your heart is in that spot of I surrender all and I want you in your kingdom first and foremost, this is, this is what it's like. It's like that first cup of coffee in the morning when caffeine hits the bloodstream and you are like, yes, I'm about to get stuff done. Let's go, Jesus, how high? Come on, let's go. Sign me up, I'm in. Maybe that's the second cup of coffee. But like, listen, you're like, let's go. That's, that's a heart of spiritual clarity where you go, yes, yes, Jesus. Yes, my king, let's go. But when your mind is fixated and your heart longs after other pictures of the kingdom, it's like the times when you are talking with a friend or an acquaintance and the TV is on and the blinking images of the screen on your favorite show or the game you want to watch make even the language of your friend sound like blah, 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 blah. So captured by the picture of something else, you can't hear the call of the kingdom and give yourself to its cause. I want us to seek first the kingdom of God, family. To seek first the kingdom of God. And I know that all that we need and all that God desires to do through us will come about as we give ourselves to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for the theme of the kingdom. For the way it's so distant to us in a democracy, but yet so familiar to the way that our hearts work in terms of allegiance and in terms of hope. And would you use this theme of yours and the words that you spoke and the words that we'll wrestle with all month to help us lay hold of what it means for us to live for you, our King. Whatever entangles us to other kingdoms, cut it off and break it free so that we might live fully in in passion and with purpose for the greatest cause of all existence. Let your kingdom come, Lord, and let your will be done. Amen.